Hi, this is Dylan Bird, and this is the podcast edition of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly show that puts local issues in a global context, giving insight into our cities, rights, culture, democracy, energy, and the environment. The Grapevine is broadcast live on Triple R every Monday from 9am till midday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. It's been a very heavy week and I know a lot of people out there are doing it tough at the moment. The referendum results was so bruising, I know, for many First Nations people and communities and the situation in Israel and Gaza has caused a lot of distress, especially for those with connections to the region. So I thought it would be a good time to stop and take stock of where we're at and make sure we're making the time to take care of ourselves and those around us. Someone who can help with this is psychologist Chris Cheers, author of The New Rulebook, which author, uh, which offers advice for navigating at complex times. Chris, thanks so much for coming into Triple R. It's great to have you. No worries, Dylan. Good to be here. And so as a psychologist, how aware are you of how these kind of big global events can impact our psychological well-being? I think I'm aware as a psychologist and also just a person right mm. now in the world. I'd like to start by acknowledging any First Nations listeners today and really just hope that the hurt you're feeling or the pain or the anger, that everyone is you know, taking the space today to really process that and do what they need. Because what I'm hearing from friends and family, I haven't seen clients yet this week, but I no doubt they'll be feeling it as well, that there's just a, a heaviness uh, in, in the world in over the weekend. And you know, I want to give people space to really just recognize whatever's happening in your body right now because at times like this we tend to maybe assume that other people might be feeling like us or or going through the same thing but but really we really have to try and give everyone the space right now to to listen to what they need and to really understand how they're feeling yeah and i mean the whole notion of of self-care to me has had you know connotations of of individualism and we know the wellness industry makes a whole lot of money out of this desire for self-improvement but also the sentiment behind it is really important as well as you say to really acknowledge our feelings and make sure we are taking the time to sit with that and and sort of work through it how do you approach that concept and and how do you advise people to to make sure they are looking after themselves i agree that sometimes self-care can be a bit simplifying you know simplifying the situation you know sometimes in really difficult times you can hear people like me just telling you to kind of do self-care and if you just do do enough self-care, you know, you'll be fine. And I think that can create a bit of a culture where we almost put the whole problem on the individual, that it's you that should fix the problem or you that if you just did the right thing, you wouldn't be feeling like this. I think the problem there is that really, if you're doing self-care to stop you feeling hurt and anger today, you know, that's not self-care because those feelings are there for a reason. Mm. So we should never be using self-care to to get rid of our emotions. Self-care should be about you checking in with your emotions, however you're feeling, and actually going, what am I feeling? Why does it make sense that I feel like this? And what action should I take? Because sometimes your self-care might feel like rest today. It might feel like focusing on the basics, reaching out for support. But sometimes self-care might look like taking action or rising up against, you know, other other forces or people around you that, that you're feeling anger towards. So I think you should never listen to people like me to tell you the self-care you should be doing. Yeah. You should always be checking with your body and, and what actions make sense for you today. Yeah. Yeah. And and what about the role of others in that, I suppose? And uh, I mean, as you say, it's important to be really aware of your own kind of mental health and, and well-being. But what role is there for others to make sure they're supporting people through, you know, these really tough times and not trying to crowd them and crowd, crowd that kind of self-care, but also making sure they're there to support them through that? 
This is the other issue with a focus on solely self-care is we forget about the care that really comes from supporting each other. And, and that goes in both directions. You know, when you are reaching out for support, you know, you're obviously supported by that. But also when you're in a community and the community is coming together to support you, sometimes self-care can really take a focus away from that. And I think today is, you know, one of those days and this week is, is one of those weeks where hopefully people are reaching out to each other for support, you know, and, you know, we're already seeing it with, with the First Nations community sort of suggesting for a week of silence mm. this week you know that that real community response and I think you know it's really important to acknowledge you know I, I talk about things like us care we talk about community care these are these ideas are things that have been practiced on you know this nation for thousands and thousands of years within the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander community and you know I think we can really learn a lot from that we can really listen to that that idea that at times of need it's not just about doing stuff for yourself it is really about what can we do as a community to support each other to get through these challenging times and how do we I suppose catch ourselves from being overwhelmed by negativity I mean you know we know that I don't want to sort of talk too much about the referendum and what happened there but we know the no camp you know there's a very negative campaign a lot of disinformation about uh, one response can be to be very angry about that and resent the fact that Australians did vote no. But in a sense as well, that's not necessarily a productive place to live in forever either. So how do we kind of grapple with that? I would say the concept of grief might be really helpful for Mm. people to think about right now, especially in regards to the referendum, because there's a loss here, right? You know, if if you were someone who was a yes supporter, if you're someone who's First Nations, you know, there there is a loss here of, of what could have been. And sometimes we don't call these kinds of losses grief, but I think grief can be a really useful way to think about where we're at because it opens up those ideas of stages of grief. Because right now you might be in that stage of, of d- disbelief, of denial, or that stage of anger, or that stage of depression. And, and to recognise that grief has all these different components to it and we have to allow the space and, and honour the space to go through those stages to really process this complex thing. In um, your book, you talk more about this kind of socially oriented approach to wellbeing and, and pushing back on that sort of individualistic focus, I suppose, of some of the self-care narrative. I suppose, you know, in our society, in an era of neoliberalism, um, there can be a sense that we feel often quite isolated. What's the role of doing collectivist things like volunteering or forming part of communities to make sure that we're sort of good within ourselves, but also that we're we're benefiting causes that we think are important and valuable. Yeah, I think the self-care industry or the culture around it can kind of divide actions up almost into there's things you can do for yourself or there's things you can do for other people. And if you're doing things for other people, you're taking away from your cup. And there's this whole concept of, you know, when you're taking away from your cup, you then have to do stuff for yourself to fill in your cup. If that's working for you, that's great. But but I think it's missing out this whole other component that when we do things for other people, when we do things for the people we care about, for our community and for other communities we care about, that helps us as well. You know, these actions just aren't merely do things for others or do things for yourself. There's things we can do that benefit us as a community. And I'd, I'd ask people to think about that today. You know, if you are feeling a pain, a hurt, you know, regarding the referendum, regarding the Middle East, regarding what's happening, sometimes one way through it is to obviously just process what you're feeling and, and maybe taking that space, but taking action to support the communities that you're feeling for or to mm. support the community you're part of can be really helpful for your well-being as well, That whether that be donation or, or what that is, that action for other people or for your own community is great for your well-being as well. How important is that those kinds of actions to, 
I guess reducing the us and them divide that can characterise a lot of these really difficult times and perhaps there's no issue more reflective of that than the the conflict between Israel and and Palestinians, of course. Um, Even with the referendum result, you know, it it looks like a lot of the kind of inner city electorates were overwhelmingly less and some, you know, country urban electorates voted no. And in a way, you know, you can analyse that and you you can unpack it, but also creating this kind of us and them divide between city and country voters isn't, isn't really helpful either. So, how do we kind of analyse this situation we're in without creating more barriers and boundaries between us? I think in many ways it's about returning to what's similar between us and different, you know, to remembering they're all humans uh, the, and to think about your family, to think about your communities. And really importantly, try not to go into a place of simplifying things into sort of binary concepts of like yes or no, or, or these ideas of city versus country. Which a referendum or, sort of re- does, doesn't it? That's, that's one of the difficult things. Exactly, that it's created this, this space where we maybe are oversimplifying a very complex thing because these things are incredibly complex. There's an incredible history and, and hurt and to, to sort of try and consider. So I'd ask you know, people to think about not just assuming that you think you know because someone lives in a certain place because they're in regional that, that they voted a certain way or that, that certain family members believe certain things. You know, Try not to make assumptions based on these simplifying things because at times of hurt and pain, the brain tends to want to simplify things. It tends to want people, you know, separate every people into good people and bad people or you know um us and them and i think we always have to go back to that idea of of remembering that we have more similar than different and and sitting down with people and when you have the space you know to listening rather than assuming what what people are thinking right now or what people need Speaking with Chris Cheers, psychologist and author, all about kind of how we can deal with the really difficult and heavy time that, that many of us are, are in at the moment and many of us are experiencing, how we can we can move forward collectively together. Uh, in a way, mental health has been destigmatized in recent years, which is a really positive thing. And, you know, many people seem more willing to seek out therapy and the like. We know that not all people can afford that. And, you know, you do a lot of sort of public media. You're very generous with your Instagram posts and the like to, um, you know, suggest ways that people might be able to, to, to deal with any challenges they might be going through. Where do you see the role of kind of mental health support in society currently and making sure we can expand it so that it is available to as many people as possible? That would be that would be really great if we could do that because that's clearly what's needed, right? We we have a, a mental health system that that is you know waiting lists are, you know too long, you know to see a psychologist is too expensive for a lot of people. You know I think what we've seen is a, a new willingness or reducing stigma about accessing mental health care, but the problem is the ability to actually do that or how accessible that is for people. Mm-hmm. So I think there is you know baseline just a need to rethink you know, how we do mental health care in this country because it's not working. And, and that's a much larger question. But, but in the short term, it is about trying to get more psychologists out there, training more psychologists, but also recognising, I think, there is a bit of a, a focus on a medical model of mental health care mm. in Australia that, and, you know, whatever you're going through, you should go and see a GP and get a mental health care plan and get a mental health diagnosis. And that's how you access care. That's kind of the system that's been set up. And I think it's important at times like this to recognise how inadequate that is, you know, because people need support right now, but not because they necessarily have a mental health diagnosis. You know, if if you're feeling it today, that's a normal reaction to a really abnormal situation. It doesn't mean that that you have something, you know, going wrong with you that's a mental health yeah. diagnosis. But currently we don't have a lot of space to access the sport for that. So think about therapists 
counsellors, you know, a lifeline, think about, you know, 13YARN, you know, there's so many phone lines and different places you can reach out for help. Don't sort of get lost in this idea that the psychologist is the only person that can help you. There's a lot of different space that I, I think we need to really focus on if we're going to try and offer the amount of help that, that we need to offer right now. Yeah, and I mean, I've sort of researched media and, and news and that sort of thing, and, and um, I was sort of interested in, you know, through the COVID years, how news avoidance really became a a kind of prominent behavioural characteristic, I suppose, of how people were dealing with really, really difficult times. And I suppose I'm interested in your perspective as a psychologist, because in a way, it, it makes sense. You know, the news is often defined by conflict. It can be really uncomfortable watching, you know, endless news media reports, for example, about what's happening in Israel and, and Gaza at the moment. But we also kind of want people to remain informed and engaged as well. So what advice do you kind of give to people in terms of making sure you are connected and informed about the world? You're not switching off, but you're also really conscious of how that might actually be impacting you. I think considering that idea of of what your intention is before you use the internet, you know, because obviously not all internet is the same, right? And when it comes to being informed and and educated about certain issues, you know, I agree with you. It's incredibly important to stay engaged with the world, to stay engaged with these issues so that we can collectively, you know, come together to make the change we need. But what that looks like to stay informed, I think, is really important right now because we are, you know, as you'd well know, we're in a space where social media has really taken over the idea of where people are getting news or or getting informed now and I think separating that is really important like think about where are you getting informed from and returning back to those concepts of maybe social media is not a helpful space Mm -hmm. right now and that doesn't mean you can't get informed right from trusted spaces from returning back to the idea of you know who are the the websites and the newspapers you trust and don't turn off triple (laughs) r don't turn off triple r right like go to the places you trust to be informed by but maybe question what is your social media use look like Mm. because in many ways you know how we use social media you know not saying that social media is inherently a bad thing but we need to consider how we're using it and the impact it's having on our mental health and well-being and whether it is actually informing us about things in a useful way. And I think asking those questions and because social media is, is built to be addictive. So we can sometimes not realize the impact it's having on us until we step back and actually just think, hang on, if I just take a couple of days off this, what does that feel like for me? And how can I maybe stay informed with not going in this space that might be at the moment actually quite a dangerous space for mental health and well-being. Yeah, really important advice, I think. It, it's been so wonderful having you on Triple R this morning, Chris. It feels like such a, a timely conversation, valuable at any time, of course, but um, particularly given the moment that we're in currently. Thanks so much and hope to chat again. Thank you. I should say, too, if you are in need of support, there is help available. 13 Yarn, that's 139276, is an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander crisis support service. You can also reach out to Beyond Blue for mental health support, 1300 224636, and also Lifeline for crisis support, 131114. Tensions have been really high following Hamas' militants' attack on Israel just over a week ago, leaving more than 1,300 people dead. In response, Israel cut off key supplies of electricity, food, fuel and water from the Gaza Strip, launched air attacks with reports of more than 2,000 casualties and gave the more than 1 million Palestinians in that part of the world just 24 hours to relocate from the north of Gaza as it prepares for a ground offensive. Those events come in one of the deadliest years on record for Palestinians in the West Bank and follows years of oppression 
by the Israeli government, which numerous human rights groups have labelled as apartheid. Anthony Lowenstein is a writer and journalist with extensive experience covering that part of the world, having lived in East Jerusalem from 2016 to 2020. His most recent book is called The Palestine Laboratory, which he appeared on this very program just a few months ago to talk about, and it's great to have him back on the show. Anthony, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Dylan. My absolute pleasure. And, uh, I mean, it's been such a scary time for those living in parts of Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories. What are you hearing from those you know kind of over there on the ground at the moment? That everyone is feeling uh, incredibly nervous. They're angry. And obviously when I say everybody, I mean, obviously the Israeli Jews that I know and the ones that I know are people who have spent decades and decades opposing the occupation. They were shocked by the attacks last week. I mean, there's no kind of way to get around that. I mean, Hamas attack was brutal, was indiscriminate. It was just complete, in my view, utter, not just strategically stupid, but just that level of brutality was only going to cause massive Israeli response. And the Palestinian friends of mine in Gaza are scared. You know, I have friends that are the ones I can keep in touch with and of course internet connection and power is incredibly poor at the moment so that kind of communication is is not great they're scared you know they're sending me photos of them walking around their neighborhoods whole neighborhoods leveled flattened people have nowhere to go and i think a lot of people in gaza and frankly a lot of people around the world who support palestine are shocked but not surprised by the fact that the entire western world almost really doesn't see Palestinians as equal human beings to Israeli Jews, that Palestinians are killed on a regular basis every day this year, in fact, mostly in the West Bank and around East Jerusalem. And obviously what happened last week is on a different scale. There's no question that's true. But they never get that same kind of attention. You know, Palestinians are are not seen as, as important as Israeli Jews. And as a Jew myself, although I'm secular and not religious, I find that double standard really very, very problematic. Yeah. And I want to get to, you know, the response from Western governments, including, you know, the US and Australia in just a moment. But for those who pay maybe, you know, scant attention to things over there, it might seem like this attack from Hamas sort of came out of the blue. We know that it was sort of unprecedented in, in scale and the like. But can you kind of give us a sense of, of what led up to this attack and, and why it might have occurred now? Well, certainly, there's a few reasons, I think. What people need to understand is that the the land that Israel and Palestine have is remarkably small. Like, we're talking about a tiny amount of land that is obviously fought over by two peoples. But, you know, we live in Australia, and often it feels like there's just such a wide expanse of land. There's nothing like that over there. And Gaza has about 2.3 million people, half of which are um, kids under 18. And unemployment's off the chart. There's a blockade that's been imposed by Israel and Egypt for 16 years when the Palestinians there voted for Hamas. In 2005, it wasn't accepted, essentially, by Israel because they regarded Hamas as terrorists. And I think parts of Hamas undeniably are, including what happened last weekend. There's no doubt that that's a terrorist act. There's no other way to see it, in my view, targeting civilians. But... I think for many Israelis and um, those who opposed the occupation, you know, you say it didn't come out of the blue. It kind of did. Mm. <laughs> On the one hand, the scale of it. I mean, resistance to the occupation, no. 
that does happen regularly. Yeah. But the scale of this was on such an unprecedented scale. I've been writing about this for 20 years. And friends of mine who have been writing about it for much longer uh, have said no one's ever seen anything like this. I mean, this is sort of on a whole different level because we're not talking about, a, in some ways, a nation-state. I mean, Hamas nominally controls Gaza, but they're not... You know, obviously, over the decades, Israel's had various wars with Arab countries, Jordan, Egypt, and others. But Hamas, at least in a way, is not a nation-state. Almost certainly they had support from nation-states. We don't really know the details of that. But there's no doubt within Gaza itself, this is something that I've noticed when I've reported there over the last 15 years, speaking to Palestinians, they feel trapped. They feel forgotten. They feel ignored, that somehow their lives don't matter, that their rights don't matter, that often if you're a Palestinian in Gaza, you want to have, you need better medical care, because often hospitals are bombed by Israel and the wars that happen there every two years. Or you need, you want to, for example, a young person, you want to study overseas and go study in Europe or the US or wherever. Often you can't get out. Israel blocks your, your exit for absurd reasons. So that undeniably over time brings up anger and frustration and at least for some although it's a tiny minority they do resist violently that happens as it does in the west bank but the context for what's happening at the moment is the occupation is a decades-long occupation of palestine which is being given carte blanche by the west including here in australia this hasn't made much of a difference whether scott morrison is prime minister or anthony albanese their response is remarkably similar it doesn't really matter which, is, which I think is revealing about how bipartisan, here at least, and in most Western countries really, with some exceptions, there is just uniformity about believing and supporting blindly in Israel for a range of reasons, partly historical and partly present day. Yeah. And, I mean, we're, we're sitting here now, as I understand it, a ground defensive hasn't yet begun. Israel gave it a 24-hour warning for people to get out of the northern parts of Gaza. And, I mean, these kind of threats, I suppose, of impending violence were made openly. What do you make of the response from the likes of Australia? You know, there's been some calls for restraint, but also an unwillingness to, to call out the impending horrific situation that looks like is about to rain down on people in Gaza. What's your response to the government's um, position on this? Well, it's worth noting that although you're right that Israel's whole ground invasion hasn't begun, they've been bombing Gaza now for over a week. And yeah. as you said in your introduction, there's been huge numbers of Palestinians who've been killed, many of whom are civilians and many of whom are children. And the impending ground invasion, which is, in my view, inevitable, could be today, could be tomorrow, of course, I don't know when, but it's going to happen. It's going to be unrelenting and brutal and uh, just sort of on a scale, I fear, that we haven't seen before. And I say that because, unlike previous wars with Hamas that Israel has fought over the last 15 or so years, this is different. And it's different because Israel has openly said... Our goal here is to essentially eliminate Hamas entirely. Now, is that even possible? We can argue that. But their aim will be to try to decapitate Hamas entirely, kill off its political leadership, literally and metaphorically, and make Gaza uninhabitable by Hamas. And I fear that what people are talking about far less is, OK, so what happens after the war ends? What happens to those 2.3 million Palestinians who can't get out? Who controls their lives? Who manages their needs? Who looks after them? Who provides their health care and education? 
And I was reading in the New York Times just last night, which is what I was fearing was going to happen, confirmed by that paper, that the US and Israel are talking about getting the Palestinian Authority, the corrupt body that manages the West Bank, manages, in inverted commas, to manage maybe Gaza in time. Like That's the vision here. The vision is to keep huge numbers of Palestinians under a brutal occupation. Whether it's Hamas running it, Palestinian Authority, it doesn't really matter. The fact is they're not free and liberated. And the, what I worry is that the impact of the attack last week, the Hamas attack, at a time where in the last years, as I've documented and others have as well, there's growing international support and solidarity with Palestinians. And I think that'll continue as Gaza's, uh, of, of Israel's massive bombardment worsens against um, Palestinians in Gaza. But I think it's going to muddy the waters. And that's what frustrates me here, that this attack, to me, and I know some people on the left, some supporters of Palestine will disagree with this, it just seems so counterproductive. I sort of think, what are you in, what to Hamas? What are you intending to achieve with this? Situation before the attack was disastrous. Don't mm. get me wrong. As obviously I've said for 20 years. But surely there needs to be an assessment about if you commit such a heinous, gravest, grievous act, what do you think is going to happen? People know Israel's response. <laughs> they have overwhelming military force. And I worry that that's going to actually make Palestinian lives even worse than it was already, which is pretty hard to do, but possible. Yeah, speaking with journalist and author Anthony Lowenstein all about the unfolding situa- situation over in Israel and Gaza at the moment. And I mean, as you note, there is a, a very strong solidarity movement for Palestinians across the world. But I suppose in the face of that, we've still seen the United States in particular very resolute in its support of Israel and, you know, Australia as well. Do you expect that to continue in the context of, you know, what seems to be impending really wide-scale violence on Palestinians in Gaza? Yes, is the short answer. I mean, I think the only caveat to that would be when, and I think this is inevitable, huge and growing images of horrific bombings and massive increase of death toll in Gaza starts getting out, which it will, that pressure on international leaders to put pressure on Israel will grow. At the moment, from what I can assess, there's very little pressure on Israel to change its current strategy. The US, which of course is the major player here, has pretty much said you have carte blanche. They kind of give lip service to um, caring about Palestinians. I mean, Joe Biden said yesterday, but does anyone honestly think the US, with its bloody record, I mean, look at the way they dealt with Iraq and Afghanistan. This is one example in the last 20 years. Their policy there was to commit mass carnage carpet-bombing areas, killing huge amounts of civilians. That was the policy. So the idea that the U.S., people say the U.S. should put pressure on Israel. Well, yes, the U.S. should, because the U.S. is the key player here, obviously being a superpower. But but America will not do that. And it wouldn't make a difference, to be honest, if it was Joe Biden in the White House or Donald Trump. And and, and this this is sort of where I think a lot of people who write and advocate for Palestine recognise this moment is going to be very clarifying, is to say... We cannot rely on Western governments, at least for now, to actually address the occupation. They are not going to end the occupation. In fact, this event last week is going to provide, in my view, even more support for Israel. So it needs to come from civil society, much more powerful civil society resistance to what Israel is doing. The union movement should get much more involved, supporting boycott, divestment, sanctions, all these kinds of tools, non-violent tools that was used very successfully against apartheid South Africa back in the day, which are being used against Israel now. 
but needs to hugely ramp up because we're not going to be getting the US or Australia or the EU or the UK coming out and not just urging restraint, but saying, in the end, as I've been saying for years and a lot in the last week, there is no military solution to this conflict. Mm. You can bomb Gaza, you can destroy Hamas, maybe. You can completely uh, subjugate Palestinians for decades. Sure, Israel's been doing that for 75 years. You can do that, but it will not bring you peace. And what's really scary to me is there are very few sane Israeli Jewish voices. There are some, I know some of them, who are doing some really important work because I think after 9-11 in the U.S., there was, as some listeners will remember, complete bloodlust and revenge. And I, to some extent, understand that. They were hurt, they were attacked. I get that. I didn't, didn't support what America did after 9-11, but I understand that feeling. But... In Israel, there is exactly the same right now. Bloodlust, revenge, we should flatten Gaza, destroy Gaza. There are some sane voices saying, by all means, let's condemn the horrific attack that Gaza committed against us. But if we believe that destroying Gaza, flattening Gaza, killing huge amounts of civilians in Gaza will bring us as Israeli Jews peace, or for that matter, Jews around the world, we are delusional. And... Making reference to, to 9-11, I mean, you're not the only one to have made that comparison. I think it was one of the Murdoch mm. papers in Australia that referenced that, but perhaps not realising all the devastation or, or acknowledging the devastation that came in the wake of that and the, I suppose, extremism and, and radicalisation that the West's bombardment of Iraq and Afghanistan really propelled. Regionally speaking, I mean, where do you think this might head in terms of the you know, potential involvement of, of Iran and, and, and Hezbollah in Lebanon as well? Do do you have real fears this will escalate into a sort of regional conflict? I really hope it doesn't, but I definitely have fears about that, and I guess other countries do too, because I note in the last few days Australia's recommended any Australians in Lebanon to leave unless they really need to. Now, I don't think they have any particular intelligence suggesting that there is going to be a regional war, but I guess they're concerned and they're encouraging Aussies in Lebanon to leave, and I suspect many will in the next days if they can get out. Look, a regional war is definitely viable and possible, and that's a petrifying thought. It's bad enough when it's simply against Gaza. But if Hezbollah, the militant group in Lebanon, gets involved and fires what they have, which is hundreds of thousands of rockets into Israel, Israel will be flattened, and then Lebanon will be flattened in response. I mean, it'll be a complete catastrophe. And that's why I think the fear is that then you start dragging in other players. The US might get involved, potentially Iran, which is a sponsor of Hezbollah and to some extent Hamas. This is sort of the nightmare scenario, and I am very much hoping that that will not happen because this is a sort of moment where it's sort of paradigm shifting, where um, borders and on maps can be changed at moments like this in the worst way possible, and that's a petrifying thought. Yeah, and we know over this conflict there's always a lot of misinformation, disinformation about I just want to kind of ask you finally about the nature mm-hmm. of media coverage of this issue because you've done a lot of interviews about it. And there was one particular interview you did on ABC that went viral and, you know, people were commenting. I think there were even articles written about it that, you know, your analysis wouldn't have been broadcast in places like the UK. Mm-hmm. To me, that sounds mm-hmm. quite alarming. I mean, what's your sense of our ability to analyse this in kind of a, a sober way and not get bound up in the ideological framing that many sort of Western governments around the world might prepare us for? 
I think in general, it's, on one level, it's sort of hard to generalise, right, because our media is so balkanised these days, one sort of can't say the media. I think it's, yeah. it's diverse, not because I think our media is wonderfully diverse, but there are lots of different outlets. Obviously, there's a Nerdock Press, which has been very gung-ho, out for revenge, very supportive of Israel, essentially bomb Gaza back to the stone um, uh, you know, Stone Age vibe. And then there's also a situation where I think, look, I've interviewed this for ABC, people can find that online. It did go viral, remarkably, um, that, I'm just kidding, that um, I was basically talking about what's happening in Palestine, speaking as an Australian Jewish uh, German uh, person. And a few people did say to me that the atmosphere in many other countries, the, this person referenced the UK, that it's really, and in much of Europe, I mean, even in the last week, in Germany, in France, even the discussion here in Australia, should it be allowed for people to protest peacefully in the streets for Palestine? This is an absurd even suggestion that you shouldn't be able to. And yet, in Germany, which has always been, frankly, terrible on this issue for maybe historical reasons, but being pro-Palestine there brings incredible amounts of pressure and violence by the state. In France, it is now illegal to protest in support of Palestine. That's where we're at. And I don't see enough media coming out and saying, this actually is the time, if you do believe in democracy and free speech, where you would say, this is the time. You don't agree with everyone protesting, and I'm not for a second defending, and some people may hear this and wonder, last week at the Sydney protest, I wasn't there, but there was a small, small fringe of people who were being profoundly anti-Semitic. That's clearly outrageous and unacceptable. I'm not talking about those idiots. But the broader case of, I think, many in the media, and I've spoken, as you said, to many uh, outlets here and overseas, some of them have much more knowledge of the conflict. I spoke often to Arab Desira, which, of course, is an Arab uh, network which does great reporting on Palestine all the time, not just in the last week. They have an understanding about the power dynamics. And I think, ultimately, the mistake that many media make is, well, there's two equal sides. Who can tell who's right? That is a fundamental misunderstanding of the conflict. There's an occupied and an occupier. Now, it doesn't justify attacking and killing civilians at all, ever, which is what Hamas did last week. But in general, there is an occupied nation, Palestinians, who have the right to resist, have the right to be free. And Israel is the, is the occupier. And so I find that too many in the media want to make it a two equal sides mm debate when it's frankly not that. It's, far, it's, it's not that at all. I mean, you can talk about the Israeli side, of course, but there needs to be, I think, a broader understanding, because as I've often said, and I'll finish on this, this issue is not really just about Israel-Palestine. Yes, the conflict itself is in Palestine and Israel, but it's much broader than that. It's about U.S. foreign policy, modern colonialism, modern imperialism, the power of the Middle East. It's about oil. It's about the Holocaust. It's about huge numbers of things. And I think by burying our head in the sand that many people want to do or just thinking, well, this will pop up again in a few months, it'll die down, then somehow that's going to be the, you know, the solution. I think it's just a delusional way to view it. And I think we need to be putting much more pressure on our media to actually give voice to Palestinians, to critical Jews at this time, rather than just having, which too many media do, kind of military commentators sort of almost assessing the military strategy of Israel, which is... Okay, fine, do that maybe in one segment, but not at the expense of discussing the effect on Palestinian lives. 
Absolutely. It's been so great for you spending a really good chunk of time with us this morning on Triple R, Anthony. Thanks so much and um, all the best to, you know, friends of yours over there as well. Um, it's such a difficult time for, you know, so many with connections to that part of the world. And, um, yeah, hope to speak again in the future. I appreciate that. Thanks so much, Dylan. Cheers. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. If that theme song does things to you like it does for me, then you're not alone. According to new research, locally made children's television programs are continuing to have a lasting impact on Australian audiences, with many accessing their favourite shows via streaming platforms. The new study from researchers at Swinburne University of Technology has noted nostalgia as a top reason people visit shows, revisit shows from childhood, and it indicates that such programs can play an important cultural life in the and encourage feelings of belonging. Dr Joanna McIntyre is Senior Lecturer in Media Studies over at Swinburne University of Technology. She's the lead researcher on this project and joins me now on the line. Hello, Joanna. Welcome. Hi, Dylan. Thanks. And so that theme, of course, is from Round the Twist, a show very much synonymous with my childhood. Is that one that comes up as particularly impactful and and memorable for Australian audiences? Absolutely. It was absolutely number one it came up in our top 10 as by far number one it really has affected multiple generations of of, uh, of, of Australians and now it's on Netflix actually there's new generations discovering it too. Fascinating I mean why is that do you think why did Round the Twist have such a big impact on people? Well I think it actually what came through in the research so we interviewed um, hundreds of hundreds of Australian adults and what came through in the research was that I'm really sorry that my alarm is, uh, my building is having an alarm. If you can hear that, sorry. Okay, yep. Um, it's on fire, is it? <laughs> yeah, no, it's not a fire. It's just testing it because of good timing. Okay. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> What came through in the research, not just about around the twist, but about why people remember certain uh, Australian shows, is the, is the mixture of weirdness and quirkiness, so that sort of surreal element mixed with relatable Australianness, mm. you know, whatever that means, but this kind of idea that there's local accents and local places and schools and people that seem familiar because they're in Australia, but it's mixed with really odd, quirky elements as well. So that formula seems to be what really has um, made Aussie kids' TV unique, generally, in comparison to overseas um, product as well, but also what makes it stay with us over time. Yeah, right. And so tell us about this research you're doing. I mean, what is it that you're seeking to find out from Australian audiences about their sort of children's TV viewing practices? So this one, this this research, this project is actually part of a broader project that we're um, looking at um, all aspects of kids, Australian kids TV. Um, and so we're talking to parents and, and children themselves and also teachers um, over, over four years, largely because TV generally is in a time of huge change with streaming era, you know, with the streaming era and um, streaming services overtaking commercial networks. So it's a really important time for us to think about what kind of local product we're watching on TV and how that's happening. And we're, we're giving our focus to, to children's TV in particular because 
we are now discovering that it has such an important important role within Australian culture. And so how readily are people re-engaging with programs like Round the Twist? I mean, is this like a recent phenomenon or have we always been inclined to, to review those kinds of shows? Well, it's, it's become a big phenomenon, but mostly, I think, because it's been uh, able to with you know, YouTube yeah. existing basically and online, and online platforms where you can easily share... Know, share your favourite theme tune from from your childhood with somebody else. So that really wasn't. It's sort of um, it's unique in the sense that we can do it now. And as soon as we were able to, we've taken to it with with um, you know gusto. So we're really enjoying being able to to share with um, people who had the memories that that we have. So this this idea of bonding, siblings in particular, came up. These kind of childhood memories, you know, shared through. <laughs> through TV, um, but also we found, which I thought was interesting, it's also a way that people demonstrate Australianness or something about Australian culture to people from overseas as well. They say, "Hey, look at this weird show <laughs> that we watched when we were kids," and this, you know, it, it, we have a sense that it tells you know, tells a story about us as us as Australians as well, and um, also us as individuals. So people were really keen to share shows from their childhood with younger relatives. You know, so and their own children actually. So it's saying, you know, here's, here's here's something of me. You can know me better by knowing that I loved this show when I was young. Yeah, fascinating. And I mean, you mentioned that Round the Twist is available on Netflix these days. I mean, of course, people can access a lot of programs through, you know, platforms like YouTube and the like. But how readily have streaming services put older programs, older children's TV programs on their platforms? Well, it's just starting to sort of come through now. Um, and it, I mean, it's it's a sort of tricky area because actually, what we're finding another avenue of our research is that uh, Australian content is actually difficult to find mm. on on streaming platforms often, and so there's not actually. I mean, something that has massive cut through, like Round the Twist, is on the streaming platform, but uh, there's not as many um, older Australian shows available like that just yet. But I think potentially that's that's coming as as things shift around in the in the streaming landscape and in terms of like the the availability of, of these kinds of shows in the past i mean was there a, a an era when there was a lot of production going into children's television in australia like i mean around the twist i think came about in the sort of very late 80s or 1990s in my childhood there were programs like lift off but i know you know everyone's yeah. experience is to some extent <laughs> defined by when they were a kid um but yeah. have we sort of for a long time produced these really impactful uh children's television shows well we it, yeah liftoff is something that sort of came up too um it, it was number seven on the list with the obviously you know the faceless mind doll EP yeah, terrifying. <laughs> living inside people's minds uh but because obviously you like me you were a child in the 90s that was a very uh very big era for australian tv so there was a convergence of technological changes and government policy changes and investment issues that sort of all converged in this perfect way to um, mean that there was a whole lot of really great Australian kids TV made in that in that era and that certainly came through in, in our research as well but 
children who were children, adults now, who were children in the 90s, really had very strong memories and really were very passionate about Australian kids' TV. And we've found a correlation between that and the fact that um, there was a lot of really good Australian, you know, good you know, quality Australian yeah. TV during that time. And in the early 2000s as well, there were a few standout shows, but certainly that was an era that really sort of, sort of set the standard of what Australian kids' TV programming can and maybe should be. Well, what people think it should be. Definitely what came through too is that people believe there should be a lot more Aussie Kids TV Interesting. Available. Speaking with Dr Joanna McIntyre, Senior Lecturer in Media Studies at Swinburne University of Technology. And Joanna is Lead Researcher on a research project into the um, impact of Australians' kids' TV, and particularly for adult audiences. And, and just to kind of drill a bit deeper... Into that, so was there a sense from the people that you surveyed and interviewed that it wasn't just, I suppose, merely nostalgia for some of those older programs? That they saw a real benefit and need to continue developing Australian sort of locally made television in in the current environment. Yeah, I think that there was also just general curiosity mm. um, that came through as a as a key reason why people were re- revisiting them, and you know because it's available, but also sharing it with their own children. So I think that you know, just as you said, that revisiting these old shows indicates this kind of understanding that kids kids programming is important, Aussie kids programming is, is important, and that wanting to share it with your, with their own children, I think, is part of, yeah, came through with showing up just how important we believe Australian Kids TV can be. So it's, yeah, it was nostalgia for people, for themselves, but then also sort of passing on that, that tradition of engaging with kids' content that reflects, you know, ourselves back to us. Yeah, and, and I mean, there's a big conversation to be had about, you know, streaming services and, and local content, and uh, I understand the government's pushed back legislation on sort of local content quotas for streaming services until next year. But, I mean, does this play into the research that you're doing at all, that sort of need to make sure that Australian industries are being supported to continue developing this kind of content? Most definitely. So this is, as I said, one just one part of a broader project that... This looking looking back to see what people and you know, to see what people believe is is important about um, kids TV, but it is definitely not just sort of an issue of well, the shows we used to love. It, it, it's also about what's happening right now in in relation to policy and legislation and what's going to happen in this time of huge change for for TV in Australia, TV generally and TV you know in Australia because these have real impacts on. Industries, you know, people who work in these industries, and also, as we're finding, you know, it really has a big impact on our culture and how we see ourselves. Because what also came through was that people formed understandings of themselves as Australians through Aussie Kids TV. That these foundational ideas around who we are uh, come, you know, are, are presented through uh, Aussie Kids TV. So there is, <laughs> there's a lot at stake now. Absolutely. Yeah, as, as we move into the streaming era, yeah. Yeah, and especially given that, you know, we're speaking after we had a referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament, which, you know, that yeah. raised so many issues about how we identify ourselves mm-hmm. as a nation and coming to, to terms with our sort of colonial past as well. And, I mean, thinking mm-hmm. about some of the kids' TV shows around at the moment, like, you know, Bluey's obviously been a huge success story, but another um, that comes to mind is Little J and Big Cuz through yeah. SBS, which is all about sort of, you know, Indigenous culture and heritage and, and language and using that as kind of a thread to, to 
explore through that series. So how important is it that the kinds of shows that are produced really reflect that diversity and do tap into those broader questions about national belonging and identity and the like? Yeah, it's, I absolutely agree. Little Jane because it's a beautiful example. Um, and there are some other fantastic shows around too at the moment, um, like Red Dirt Riders and there's a few other. Actually, the ACTF has been key in producing shows that feature Indigenous um, kids and also are produced by Indigenous people. So that's really important as well. And just, I think, diversity generally. Um, people did, when we asked them in this in, in this project what they thought had changed about kids' TV since uh, since they were children. One of the big things was diversity, that there's much more inclusive representation in kids' TV these days. So that was a big win for Aussie Kids TV. So that is quite important. Shows like Liftoff included a, a diverse cast of, of, of kids, but the, the 90s stuff is still pretty, pretty you know, white, middle class. Mm. Um, but then there were things like um, Little Elvis and the Truck Stoppers. So that was... <laughs> that, yeah, people remember that. Yeah, that was, you know... So Kids TV has, you know, it, it, it can and should reflect all different types of Australians to all different types of Australian kids. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm going to give you an opportunity to give a shout-out. I think you're looking for participants for a, another survey as part of this research as well. Is, is that right? Oh, that would be wonderful. Yes, we are looking at, so it's a, it's an ongoing, so we've been doing it for a few years now, we're tracking um, how families watch TV and what they watch. So it's not about screen time, it's about what shows um, families are engaging with. And so we would love parents, anyone who looks after somebody under 14 or under, uh, we would love you to go to our uh, website, ACTAA ctcresearch.com.au and if you are able to go there and take our survey uh, we would be very very grateful that ends this week and we would love some more some more voices to be able to look at what what really matters to Australian families excellent so this, you know we're using this research in policy submissions already so it is and we're working with the ACTF the Australian Children Children's Television Foundation uh, and this research really is making making what well, we hope it will make a very big difference to showing up just how important Aussie Kids TV is, the, you know, the impact that it has, and what we really need and want as Australians from Aussie Kids TV. Excellent. Well, hopefully, Triple R listeners answer the call. So that website is actcresearch.com.au. If you feel like filling sorry, out. There's no AU, it's just.com. Oh, just.com. Oh, sorry. <laughs> just.com. actcresearch.com. Yeah, that, yes, yes. So please, please, anyone, any parent out there, uh, please just uh, log in and tell us yeah, how your family watches TV. It's all anonymous, uh, but we really want to know how. how how actual families are watching TV, really, not not these sort of just anecdotal perceptions, but we want to know what's really happening for, for Australian families in relation to the in relation to the telly. Yeah, excellent. Well, even reading about this research made me feel nostalgic for Round the Twist, and I kind of want to dip back into it, yeah. um, into it now. It's, it's been great having you on Triple R, Joanna. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Dylan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs, issues and culture program on Triple R. The Grapevine is broadcast live on Triple R every Monday from 9am to midday. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to keep in touch at rrr.org.au.